Well, good morning. I hope this video finds all of you well and safe at home. We know that things have been a little bit crazy in this past week, and uh, we expect it to remain that way at least into this next week, um, and very likely beyond then. So uh, I was thinking a lot, the elders and I have been going back and forth for a while on what might be the best way that we can serve our church um, in these upcoming weeks. And um, as it came to the teaching time, we thought it would be helpful to uh, give you uh, just what we had already been doing uh, for a while, and hopefully this would be something that will serve you well. Um, but specifically regarding the topic that I wanted to preach through today, I uh, originally thought maybe I should preach through something different, you know, because of COVID-19 and because everybody's stuck at home. And, but as I continued to think more and more about it, uh, I started to realize that Christians are the most resilient people on the planet. What I mean by that is that Christians can endure more than anyone else on the planet. And not, not because we just hold on to some kind of stubborn resolve, but because we have faith in God who can do all things. And that's a really significant thing. My greatest way to help you today would be just to teach through what we'd already been working our way through in Hebrews. So I want to do that uh, this morning, and hopefully that'll serve you well at home. I'm going to read through our passage for this morning. That's Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to read through the section, verses 1 through 12, and then go back through the parts that we're going to cover specifically today, uh, verses 7 through 10. So let me go ahead and read, pray, and then we'll dive back in. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown us for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Lord, you are a good and wonderful God. You provide for us uh, even when we're stuck at home and you take care of the things that we need um, in a measure greater than we could possibly deserve. Lord, I pray that we would be an essentially uh, and a profoundly grateful people in these, these uh, interesting weeks that we're going through right now. Lord, as we read this word, we pray that you would help us. I know that this is a passage that has provoked many to questions. Uh, even worse, Lord, I know that this particular chapter, this, this section we just read through, has caused certain people uh, to uh, turn their eye away from your word out of frustration, not understanding what it says or, or not knowing how to deal with it, or perhaps... Uh, seeing things there that are contrary to what they have already thought. 
Uh, Lord, I just know that that has happened to people. And I pray that today, as we go through this passage, that I'd be able to serve well the people that I love and that I would honor you and your word and that no errors would come off my lips. Uh, Lord, we need supernatural help uh, for you to do any of that. And we ask for it uh, this morning, Lord, as we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we covered verses one through six. That's the beginning of this passage. And there we found out that he is in the midst of a rebuke. The author is challenging his audience. He's frustrated with them, that they've not grown on to a maturity that he would hope for them to have because he has critical and complicated things he wants to tell them, but he's concerned that they won't understand. He began this section by encouraging his audience to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and to go on to maturity. Now, I argued last week that these elementary doctrines were old covenant truths that serve as the foundation for the new covenant. Remember, the author told us in verses 4 through 6 that something is impossible. And what he was saying that was impossible is that it's impossible for certain people who have fallen away to be restored to repentance. That is, it's impossible for certain people to get into heaven. Now I asked, who are these here who fall away? Who are those people? And the two options that come to the mind as you ask that question would be, A, it could be false converts who have finally and definitively rejected the gospel, or B, it could be genuine believers who have lost their salvation. Now, I argued that these certain people that the author has in mind are Christians, but that it wouldn't necessarily mean that Christians can, in fact, lose their salvation. Now, I think it's impossible for a Christian to lose his or her salvation. I hold deeply to the doctrine called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. So how does that work? If I can think that this text is talking about Christians, how is it that I can also say that Christians cannot lose their salvation? I do hope to answer that question for you today. But first, I'd like to take a look at the passage. Let's just walk through it together just to get the big picture and see if we can find the answer as we go through. Reading again, chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This section here starts with the word for. And of course, as we've said many times before, this shows that the author is introducing something in order to clarify a point that was previously made. In fact, right now he's about to introduce an illustration for greater clarity. So he talks about this land that has drunk rain and it produces fruit or a good crop. And so because of that, God blesses that land. There's another kind of land that does not produce fruit but thorns and thistles. And God curses that land. Its end is to be burned. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Because it should. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament uses similar imagery to help convey the same idea. Let me just show you one quick example of this found in Isaiah 55. It's perhaps a familiar passage. Isaiah 55 verses 10 through 11 says, 
For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Remember, in Hebrews 3 through 4, a couple chapters ago, he used the rebelliousness of the Israelites in Moses' day as a warning for us. He said that both they and we have heard good news from God, but they did not believe it. And because they did not believe God's word, they did not obey him. Simply, they had no fruit to show for it. Isaiah 5 uses a similar metaphor. And just as in Hebrews, Isaiah rebukes Israel for not producing good fruit. In the New Testament, Jesus uses the parable of the sower and the soils. You may remember this, the four soils. and The, the, the seed goes out by the sower and it lands on four different types of soil. Three of them eventually die out. But one takes root, and that's the fertile soil, and it produces many more fruits. The land produces useful crops, but other thorns and thistles. This is very much like the passage we see right here in Hebrews. It's a very similar idea being used, same kind of imagery. The land that produces fruit is blessed, while the land that produces thorns and thistles is cursed. Going on to verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Though we speak in this way, speak in what way? What does he mean? Well, obviously, he expects his audience to feel the weight of what has just been said. In fact, for me, this is yet another reason I think he is talking about Christians and not merely false converts. Because if they already did not think this warning was for them, then they wouldn't need this encouragement. And technically that could be said even if the audience had false converts, because the false converts would think that this encouragement was for them too. He goes on to say, Beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Quite simply, just as it sounds, this author is confident that his audience will be in heaven. He's convinced that they really are saved and will not be of those who fall away. That's what he's encouraging them with here. But how is it that he can be so confident of this? So far, we've gotten a few things about the audience that he's talking to, but mostly we've gotten the sentiment of rebuke. They're dull of hearing. Uh, he's, he's concerned that in some of them there might be an evil, unbelieving heart leading them to fall away. He's concerned for them. He said these kind of things multiple times about them already. And yet, he is sure, he is confident, he has become convinced of better things, things that belong to salvation. How can he be so confident? Look at the next verse. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. He is aware of the works that they have demonstrated. The work that these people have already displayed is evidence of genuine salvation. For the record, the work he's talking about here is not just polite 
good neighbor behavior, but it has the indelible marks of a regenerate life. He's going to come back to talk about their work and the things he's observed in them, and it's really amazing the kind of stuff that you'll see. But here he mentions this, the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Think about that for a minute. Do you remember the first and greatest commandment as Jesus said it? was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Here, he's telling these Hebrews that he has observed in them that they have shown love for his name. He's observed them already following that single greatest commandment. And what was the second greatest commandment, the one that was like it? To love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what they did. They didn't love their neighbors. They were serving the saints as you still do. One more thing to say about this before we, we move beyond this for a moment. It's incredible to see that love for God is displayed as they were serving other Christians. It's a beautiful thing. And the point of this is clear. The author's basis for his confidence that these people are not those who will fall away is that he has observed in them fruit rather than thistles. Now with all this in mind, Let's just consider the question that I proposed as we started today. It was actually the question that I ended last week's sermon with. This is the question. How does this work with perseverance of the saints? If verses 4 through 6 serve as a warning, genuinely regenerate people being warned does that mean that a person can lose his or her salvation? The answer, I think, is no. I don't believe that's the case at all. The doctrine of perseverance of the saints is the doctrine that teaches that the Bible gives us enough reason to see this, that we can say confidently a person, once saved, once born again, adopted into the household of God, the now found sheep. Once was lost, now is found. The once was blind, now is see. We have beautiful songs that sing about this thing. Then once a person crosses that line of conversion, is genuinely written into the book of life, that person will certainly be in heaven. And no one will ultimately lose their salvation. Philippians 1.6 is one of my favorite verses that speaks to this. It says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our good shepherd. And he has been given sheep by his father. It's Christians. And he will bring his flock home. And when he gets there, his father will not say, where are all the sheep that I gave you? Unlike Moses... Unlike Joshua, unlike David, unlike any other leader, Old or New Testament, Jesus will not lose one of the sheep that has been granted by his Father. Neither by a wolf coming in from the outside or by the sheep running away, no sheep will be lost. And that's the doctrine of the perseverance or the preservation of the saints. So how... Does this, this doctrine, this perseverance of the saints, how does this fit the passage that we read last week and concluded this week? Let's consider what this passage has to say about perseverance of the saints. 
Just a few, a few things for you here today. First, consider the land and rain illustration. This is verses 7 through 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. It seems pretty obviously to be talking about a heaven-hell, the blessing of God being heaven, the end to be burned is hell. That's the illustration being utilized. And the people are the land, and God waters the land. Now, why does any author use an illustration? To make a point clearer. This author here anticipates that there may be some misunderstanding from what he just said. And so, he gives this illustration to try to clarify the main point. And you might have noticed that with this illustration, there is no land that produces half good fruit and half thorns and thistles. Additionally, there's no land mentioned that produces good fruit for a while and then starts producing bad fruit. This fits precisely what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Look at Matthew 7, 17 through 19. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's just like the other passages that we read earlier. The ones in the Bible, Isaiah 55, Isaiah 5 has, has a reference to that as well. Jesus' parable of the sower and the soils. You remember that one? Recall to mind the parable of the sower and the soils. In that case, the same seed went out on four different soils, but only in the fertile soil did it take root and grow to bear fruit. And the main point of that parable is the same as the main point here in Hebrews chapter 6. Genuine receptiveness is lasting and fruitful. Genuine receptiveness is lasting and fruitful. In none of these passages that utilize this kind of imagery does good soil become bad soil. Good soil will prove itself to be good by producing fruit. The fact that this land and rain illustration shows up right here in Hebrews chapter 6, immediately following the warnings, that we, it shows that we don't have to solely rely on passages outside of this text. To me, that gives this argument much greater weight. Second, he says in verse 9, we feel sure of better things. Let's look there again. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The author has confidence that his audience will not fall away. The same audience that he just warned, he now comforts. If a person could lose his or her salvation, this line would totally undo the warning he just gave. It would sound more like, of course you actually can fall away, but don't worry because you can't actually fall away. It's clearly not the point. In fact, this is exactly the way that effective warnings work. They warn of real danger, at the same time actually keeping people from falling into the danger. They're effective simply because they're sincere. Third, the full assurance of hope until the end. This is from uh, verse 11, which we didn't quite cover today, but let me read that out loud for you right now. 
And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, again, because we didn't quite get to this verse today, we'll, we'll deal with that a little bit more later. But just look quickly at what he says about assurance. If it were possible for a Christian to lose his salvation and never get it back, how could it be possible for him to reach a point of full assurance? The point, right here, in the midst of a passage that has been used by many to reject perseverance, we have some of the sweetest reminders of the full assurance of salvation. Now, if you're still skeptical of perseverance of the saints, I want you to consider, if it is true that God preserves his people to the end by giving them genuine warnings so that no regenerate person can lose his or her salvation, what should we expect to see in the Bible? The answer is exactly what we just read, where we see an actual warning right next to actual comfort. Real warnings and real assurance should be expected if God wants to warn his people as a means to preserve them. In my estimation, there's no other view to this that gets this right because any other view has to either reject the legitimacy of the warnings or the legitimacy of the assurance. Real warnings are given to real believers as God's intended means to preserve his people to the end. Now I want you to consider for a moment what that means. This means that God, in his great love for his people, has provided a way for them to be preserved. And his preservation method is warnings. That's at least part of it. Real warnings and real assurance. So here's the application points for today. I'm going to just conclude with three of them that I think are the major crux of this text. First, be warned. This text is here to warn us. Let there be no mistake about that. We need these warnings. They are good for us. Remember the land and the rain imagery. No matter how good the soil, it cannot produce fruit on its own. Think about that. If you did not water soil, no matter how good it was, it's not going to produce a tree that grows up to bear fruit. It needs rain. It must be watered. In the same way, you and I will not produce good fruit unless God sends rain. We need to be watered. And the Hebrew 6 version of watering here is warnings. God waters the good soil. He sends the rain of warnings that he will produce fruit through us. Be warned. Right now, as you're sitting at home, you're getting ready to head into another very odd week. This is an incredibly exceptional time in American history. It's hard to look back and find other times that are quite like this. Not a living memory, for sure. There are so many things this week that might just distract you, that might keep you away from your typical routines that you may have established that would help you stay in the Word and in prayer. Be thoughtful and mindful about God. Perhaps you have people outside of your home at work, uh, maybe on your commute to and from, that kind of give you a, a little cue, a reminder to be thinking about God. Maybe it's a non-believer, and you've committed to pray for that non-believer. And every time you see them, you're thinking like a Christian thinks as you pray for them. 
maybe there are friends that you know that are, you get to see on a regular basis or at least on a weekly basis. You get to sit down in a Bible study with them and you'll open the Bible and you'll be reading and you'll, you'll be infused again with this, this wonderful knowledge of who God is and, and uh, you'll have started the day off well or finished the day off well in that. And If that routine is not there, that's pulled out from under your feet, you may be in a position to be especially distracted this week. In fact, the time that you invest in looking at your device might be less on Bible and on truth and more on trying to find out what's going on out in the world, which could be understandable. We all want to know what's going on. But this week, be warned. Be warned. Remain faithful. Live like a Christian. Honor God in Christian ways today. The second, the second application for today is be assured. Be assured. Yes, Hebrews 6 serves to encourage Christians in full assurance. I am confident of this, that good things are for you, things belonging to salvation. This is an assurance passage as well. This audience had endured all sorts of trials, and they had proven the genuineness of their faith in Jesus. Assurance like warnings are that rain that produces good fruit. Be assured this week. Be assured that God is in control. God is sovereign over the COVID-19 pandemic. God is sovereign over the toilet paper supply that's out there. God is sovereign over the weather and earthquakes and everything else that comes to pass. God is watching and he is good and he's caring for his church. Be assured that you belong to God if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and know that he has secured heaven for you by warnings and by assurances. Third application, be fruitful. Simply, be fruitful. This text is here to encourage fruitfulness. It's to warn us, it's to give us assurance, and it is to encourage fruitfulness. A Christian life is a fruitful life. Every good tree produces fruit. You have the Lord or you have the Spirit, then you will produce fruit of the Spirit. This week, perhaps more than other weeks, you may be in a position to uniquely display good fruit. You may be in a position to display good fruit before your neighbors in a way that you don't typically there's so many people out there that don't interact with their neighbors very often, but now that the only people you might see in this next week are your neighbors as you run out to grab the, the, the mail or as you might interact with each other at a park when you desperately need some fresh air or something like that. This week, turn your attention to fruitful behavior, especially towards the saints in your life. There are Christians right now who might be hurting, stuck at home. They don't have anyone to be in contact with. Maybe the shut-in who may not have a chance to get out and spend time with people because there's no one even in their own home to spend time with. A phone call, an encouraging text or an email, a letter to somebody that might just convey some kind of love could be, could be a really fruitful way to show love for God as you serve others. And what about the non-believers in your life? What about the neighbors? God has sovereignly determined where you would live. You live in exactly the address that he intends for you to live right now. And as you look around at your neighbors, what kind of fruitfulness might you be able to display? 
What kind of love for God might you be able to offer? People aren't, being able, aren't able to get to the store the same right now. And if they do run out to the store, there's not as many things available. Have you ever thought of going to the neighbor and asking if there's anything that they need? Can you help provide that for them? Just, this is a great restart time to develop good relationships with your neighbors and love them, build relationships with them. Brothers and sisters, this week is a bit unique. And we are encouraged in Hebrews chapter 6 to be warned, watchful, mindful to guard our faith. Second, be assured that the work was finished on the cross. That if you are a sheep of Jesus, you will end up in the sheepfold of God. And lastly, be fruitful. I hope that that's encouraging for you today. I want to go ahead and close our time with prayer. Let's do that. Father, I am so thankful that you have provided means, just technological tools that we can leverage to stay connected with each other. Social media, uh, texting. Um, we, can, we can upload sermons on videos like this. Uh, Christians at home all over the place, even non-believers can open up their computers, even their TVs, and watch sermons by people who love you and are trying to help teach from the Bible. Father, I pray that you would uh, use these uh, this passage that I just preached through right now as a great service to those whom I love and, and I miss and I will not be able to see uh, uh, this weekend and next weekend. But Lord, I pray that you would use these words uh, to lift us up. Father, help it, help it drive us to study. Help it drive us to fruitfulness. Father, we need your help for all those things to happen. And we ask for you to help. In Jesus' good and holy name, amen.